Hi, and welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Artscoping is a podcast featuring innovative leaders from the cultural world, ranging from museum directors to authors. And today, we're lucky to have award-winning author April Reynolds Mussolino. Her first novel, Knee Deep in Wonder, published by Henry Holt and Company, channeled fear and longing across four generations in the Deep South. The Washington Post called it an intriguing exploration of the nature of memory, the burdens of motherhood and history, and the universal bittersweet longing for home. It won a Penn Award, among other honors. April is the Michelle Talela Myers Chair in Writing at Sarah Lawrence College. Her short stories have appeared in several anthologies, and her second book, The Preacher King, is forthcoming. Welcome, April. Hello there, Mac. <laughs> Glad to hear your voice. And who better to turn to than a storyteller to tell us a story about your family's retreat from the virus? Well, you know, I think that actually our story is a lot like a lot of people who live in New York. It was rather sudden. Before we all knew it, we were under quarantine, uh, like most of New York City. First was actually my college where I work, Sarah Lawrence College. And then the next day, my son, who goes to MCC, was sent home and, and not to return. Yeah. And, uh, and then my other son, literally a day later, and then finally that afternoon, my husband. And so we've been at home ever since. I'm remote teaching for Sarah Lawrence. So there's a lot of constant Zooming and, and working on computers and Google Docs and, and right. so on and so forth. So kind of juggling the schedule, that's been our issue. I think of Sarah Lawrence as a very emotionally rich place, if I may call it that. Yes. So how are you, <laughs> how are you connecting with your emotionally rich students? How are they faring? You know, I think, that in a strange way, the younger people are doing a better job than we are and sort of dealing with this very abrupt change as to how all of us conduct our lives rather well. I think they like us because they're all over. You know, I have students obviously living in New York City, but in California and Costa Rica, I have students in Hong Kong. I mean, they ask for guidance, more importantly, like, how do you get your work done? All of us, we're in this new place where we're creating habit, right? Yeah. And now we've got to create this new habit. And I think as long as you don't slide too far into, I do everything in my pajamas, you'll be okay. In addition to being a person who's channeling the creativity of these students now all over the world, you have in your first novel, Knee Deep in Wonder, taken us to a place to the deep south and given such a vivid picture can you tell us what prompted you to start that odyssey towards writing it and how it evolved as a book well you know my story is sort of based on my father's life when i was a kid growing up he just sort of regaled us with all of these stories about what it was like to grow up in the gym pro south and then also his life in particular so a lot of the major plot points that happen in Knee Deep in Wonder are actually true. So my grandfather, his name was Chess, and he really did die trying to save a boy from drowning, even though he himself couldn't swim. And that was sort of a well-known thing about him. And sort of from the germ of that 
original story. I sort of put all around it these other characters, whether that be Liberty or Queen Esther or Helene. But are you Helene? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone asks that, right? No, I am not actually. You know, I think that like all characters in relationship to their creators, there's parts of me that are like her, but in a very holistic sort of way. No, no, not at all. Uh, <laughs> I grew up with my mama. But yes, I think her curiosity about her life and where she came from and who her people are and what does that mean? Yeah, that's me. But the sort of particulars of her life, no, no, not at all. You started life in Texas. Yes. My dad was actually born and raised in Lafayette County where the story takes place. You know, when recreating or reimagining what his childhood was like and, and life in the South, I placed it there because he had such a vivid retelling of, of what his life was like. And I thought in this strange way, when I wrote my first novel, it was easy to conjure that his story in that place. Um, we, and we went, you know, to Lafayette County, Arkansas several times in my writing of the novel. And what was the experience like being there versus writing about it? What did you have to turn off when you were going back in time and writing? The thing that is most interesting about writing about the South is there is this sort of timeless quality about it. Life in Arkansas now is obviously very different than life in the 50s and 60s, but in so many ways, it's quite similar. You know, I tried to, as best I could, give my characters, whether they were writing about them when they were younger or writing about my protagonist in the sort of real time of the story, trying to give them the sort of distance to let them be themselves and sort of fully realized. So I had to kind of turn me off in what I think about life in Texas, life in Arkansas, life in the South, and give my readers a kind of clarity and able to lend a sort of sympathetic eye to my characters. And hopefully I, I, I was able to do that. And growing up in Dallas? I was born and raised in South Dallas. I live about two or three blocks away from the State Fair of Texas. Sure. The State Fair is the largest in America, yes. being Texas. <laughs> Did you attend? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you can live in Dallas and not go to the State Fair. Every year, the State Fair of Texas and the good citizens of Dallas actually give all the school children a free ticket. Mm -hmm. And close schools for a day so that all the kids can go to, to the state fair. And, and, you know, interestingly enough, a rite of passage is that moment when your parents stop taking you to the state fair and you get to go with your friends. You know, when do you become grown up enough to go to the state fair by yourself? You're describing a childhood that seems of happy memories. We're now living with COVID-19 at a time when I think the Confederacy is having its divisions reignited. Would you agree with that or 
disagree? Um, both. I would both agree. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's such a non-answer. Most of my family still lives in Texas. And I think one of the interesting things that has happened in the South, which sort of makes sense, is we do have we Southerners have a predilection towards storytelling. And that can sort of lend itself towards conspiracy theories. And I, I, I've, I've often thought to myself, one of the reasons why conspiracy theories can sort of take off the way they do is that in a very real way, they make sense of what feels nonsensical. Mm -hmm. There's something about the coronavirus that feels, it's just such an unknown entity, right? The state houses of the South is where the problem is, not so much in the cities of the South. Right. Because the state houses are having a difficult time grappling with the premise that our president might be wrong. That seems to be uh, that's an issue, yes? Is there, is there anything about this pandemic that is making your fingers want to get on a keyboard and create some fictional account built around it? Huh, interesting. You know, I have not done that. I certainly think that this is a time where if you are a writer, you seem to be almost soused in story and storytelling. And I don't know what it's like for other people who don't live in New York City, but you do look at what's going on outside and, and the emptiness of the city, which is so startling. If I'm not thinking of a story, I'm certainly thinking of scenes and what that looks like. And, you know, I've never seen the city like this. The closest I feel like I've ever been with the city like this, so quiet and so empty, were, were the days after 9-11. And there was just a kind of silence all around the city. And it's, it's like that now, except it's everywhere, which is disconcerting, to say the least. On the one hand, it feels as if we've been doing this forever. I mean, I feel like I've been quarantined for years, and yet it's only, what, been, I want to say, six, seven weeks? Is that right? A little longer for some, but yeah, something like that. And there's a kind of strange, timeless quality about it. I sort of understand how bad it is the way I think most Americans understand how bad it is, which is you check the numbers every day and they keep climbing and climbing and climbing. I have family from Texas calling me all the time. Are you okay? You know, right. I hear people dropping dead in the streets and like, no, we're fine. So I don't know. But you have written something. Can you tell us what that is? Yes, I'm working or writing with Marcus Samuelson, who is the owner of Red Rooster, which mm -hmm. is a restaurant in Harlem. And obviously, like um, most restaurant owners, he has been pretty hard hit. They obviously had to close the restaurant. But one of the things that Marcus has done in response to that is he has gotten together with Jose Andres, which is World Central Kitchen. And he, along with, a, with obviously a very pared down crew of his staff, are serving probably about a thousand meals a day. Wow. to people who live in Harlem. And, you know, one of the stories that he wants to tell is 
you know, the success of your average restaurant is based on cultivating the regulars. You know, who are the people who come every Monday? Who are the people who stop by your place every day for lunch? And those people for thousands of restaurants in New York City, those people have vanished. And at Red Rooster, the regulars that he has been cultivating for over eight years, they've actually been replaced by new regulars. Initially, they were homeless. They are New York City people who are most in need. But as the quarantine has continued, those people standing in those lines, they've changed. And they're, they're now school teachers. They are people who look to be working in construction. They are regular people who used to work at the mom and pop around the corner. They stand in line every day the way the regulars would come to lunch every day. They tell Marcus how many people are in their families and then they, they receive meals. And so he's doing that not only in Harlem, but he's also doing this in Newark. He had just opened up a restaurant in Miami. And so he's also doing this in Miami. They've gotten up to 1,600 meals a day. He's also bringing in other restaurants in Harlem, so Melba's and the other sort of small restaurants that dot that neighborhood. And so they too are making meals and helping serve uh, the people in Harlem. April, where are we going to be able to read this? Uh, hopefully we will be able to read that in the New York Times op-ed section. What you're describing is heroism on the part of restaurant owner, restaurant workers, teachers, yeah. people who are in the service world. Are we seeing a new alignment of what courage means in society and an awareness where it's absent? You know, we definitely have stories about who are heroes. And we think often it's the police, it's the firefighters, you know, the soldier. I think what is interesting is that it does take a tremendous act of courage to actually be the lady who works at the grocery store. Deliver. And, yeah, and delivers the groceries. And we need them. And I think the thing that I find myself kind of riveted by is that we're in this moment where we are in a fundamental way reconfigurating what we think is necessary. So frequently, what we consider necessary, we have to have this or things will fall apart. It's actually not true. I mean, we like basketball and basketball is great. It's not necessary. And that's heretical. I just, I can't believe you've just said that in America. <laughs> <laughs> we like it. I miss it. But it's not the thing that is necessary to our lives. And these but sport has been the opiate of the people <laughs> for so long. You're saying that if we take away this opiate, what's going to happen? Aren't we going to have pandemonium in the street? Well, I think that actually, like most people, we are jonesing. We are jonesing, <laughs> you know, rocking back and forth in place over our addiction for, for basketball. But it's not the thing that we need to get through our day-to-day. -day. And suddenly, coming into high relief are these people who we normally do not consider and are very much invisible in our lives. We need them. It's not a want. It's not a, oh, it's nice to think of people who deliver your groceries, cook your food. They are necessary in a way that 
we think pre-coronavirus, we would have given that kind of label to singers and baseball and basketball and, and yeah. you know, Wall Street, the stockbrokers. We need these folks to make the world go round. And that seems not to be the case, which is sort of a startling lesson that America is being forced to learn with uneven success about that. That's one of the disquieting things in the art world is the first people museums fired were the frontline workers, mm. the people of color, the people who <laughs> guarded and cleaned and ran the restaurants, and they were the first out the door. So there are all these high relief moments coming and revealing, I think, mm -hmm. aspects of our world. You mysteriously have gone on assignment for the State Department. <laughs> and so as we talk about America's view of itself and who is distinguished and who isn't, tell us about that experience and your lecturing on creative writing and your own works when you were working for the deep state. Oh, yes. One of the things I love about America, I can't believe I actually said the words, but one of the things that I love about America and the State Department pre-Trump is that America is very much aware that we need to tell our story to the world. That that is just as important as any kind of diplomacy that we use uh, in various nations. And because we come from such a varied place, you and I are both Americans, although I think you and I can both agree we come from very different backgrounds. In the State Department, used to be very much aware that your story is important, as is mine, and our different stories need to be told to places like Italy and Paris and Israel and China. And so the State Department sends out artists all over and we tell our stories. We tell our fictional stories, but we also tell our, you know, our personal stories, what it means for us to be American artists. We then in turn give lectures about that. We talk about American culture, and that's actually a pretty complicated story to tell uh, in light of, of, of how different we are and, and from region to region. And so the State Department for a while had me go to all these various places and talk to college students ambassadors, talk to the mayors of various cities. And so we pull the story of American arts and American culture so that other countries could get a better sense of what it actually meant to be an American and how varied that title is. To say I'm an American and I have a culture and we have an art this is such a tapestry. And so the State Department was very interested in giving the world a sense of our diversity and how that diversity is revealed in our art and in our culture. Universities are all looking at this common challenge. Are they going to go back to something resembling business as usual? Or what are you and your colleagues in the administration saying at Sarah Lawrence about the fall and beyond? beyond panicking. No, um, <laughs> I'm going to answer this in a roundabout way. One of the things 
that I find most fascinating about being an adult is that somewhere along the line, it becomes incredibly inappropriate to admit that you don't know something, right? And so to be an adult is to say, here's what's going on, here's how we're going to implement whatever we are trying to do and so on and so forth. And this pandemic is interesting because we are all in a place where we don't know what is going to happen and we don't know what is the proper way to respond. Colleges, particularly mine, but uh, of, you know, I have colleagues who work other places, whether that's Columbia or NYU, we don't know what we're going to do. We have been having discussions about a plan A and then a plan B and then a plan C and then perhaps a plan D. How and when to implement these plans is online teaching. Is that what we're going to do for the fall, perhaps for the year? Should we just close in the fall and then open back up in the spring? And all of these plans are obviously contingent on knowing things that we don't know. Will there be enough tests? Are you able to practice social distancing in a space, i.e. your average college campus, that was not built to do that, right? Whether that's a lecture or that's a seminar of 15, most colleges are built for people to sit together shoulder to shoulder. And so how exactly do you implement something like social distancing on your average college campus? And so we're dealing with that. We're dealing with what happens if students don't come back? What happens if students decide, I don't want online teaching? That's not what I consider a proper education. And so I'm going to quote unquote, take a gap year and wait until there's a vaccine, wait until there's more testing so on and so forth, and then I'll go back to college. You know, last week I had an interesting conversation with a student of mine when we were talking about this, and I asked her, so are you planning on coming back to the college in the fall? And she said, yeah, because you know, the thing is, April, me and my friends, we all say, if we don't go back to the college, whether that's coming to campus or online teaching, what exactly are we going to do? I mean, when we think about things like a gap year, you think about students who have jobs, or they do a cool internship, or they travel. None of those things will be happening. And so it's not a question of, well, will I go to school or will I, you know, go to Paris or will I go to school? Will I work for MTV? The question is, will I go to school and whatever permutation that is, or will I do nothing at all? And students faced with not doing anything at all and being stuck with like, I don't know, how much Netflix can you watch in four or five months? I finished Netflix, so I'm done. <laughs> I've done so much Netflix. They are at, you know, we have actually more students than I suspected saying, I, I want to do something. I want to actually receive an education because it is a necessary thing. It is something that I can do in my home that gives me a schedule that allows me to think, that allows me to actually talk to other people uh, and adults and learn something because the alternative is, 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 pretty, is pretty dire. Yeah, and I, I think about the Southwest and 
being outdoors right up until the dead of winter where it's possible to be Socratic dialogue mm. under an olive tree <laughs> 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 learning as one did thousands of years ago, but that's not everybody's option. Yeah. Now you have another novel coming out, The Preacher King. Can you tell us a bit about that? It is about a young boy who has been murdered. And while we're trying to figure out who done it, so it's a bit of a whodunit, uh, we're also seeing East Harlem, which is where it's based, and it's based in East Harlem in the 80s. We're seeing a response to this young boy's killing. He's 12 years old, and through a confluence of events, he has actually been dead on the street, dead on the sidewalk for a couple of three days. And the community is outraged. And we see the sort of fallout from this young boy's murder, both in the community, but also for his, his mother and the church which they attended. And so we follow their stories. What prompted you to start this? When I first moved to New York City, I actually lived in East Harlem. And it's a, it's a fascinating neighborhood. It's this weird place where there's all of this various overlap of all of these various ethnicities that live there. And as, you know, various groups become more financially stable, become more part of the American dream and move away, they leave behind people who weren't able to follow them. Even though when we think about East Harlem, we think about Spanish Harlem, right? Initially, East Harlem was mainly Italians, a bunch of Jewish people, obviously a bunch of Black people and a bunch of Hispanic people, and they're they're all sort of living together. I kind of combined that experience with, <laughs> you're gonna think I'm fibbing, but I actually combined that experience with my reading of Plato's Republic. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, there was this moment in the Republic where there's a young man, it's the guy G's ring story, a young man who has a ring, and when he fiddles it and turns it one way, he disappears. Mm-hmm. When he fiddles it and he turns it another way, he appears. And once he figures out the trick of it, he immediately goes and kills the king and marries the queen and, mm-hmm. you know, takes over everything. There's a bit of New York City that's like that, right? Mm-hmm. Where we can kind of walk around invisible. I kind of wanted to set that phenomena in a city, you know, that immediate, if I were invisible, just how many bad things could I do? Like playing that out in the city. There's a reason why Socrates, when he sits down with all of those young men and they decide to talk about justice, they have to build a city in speech. Mm-hmm. And the Preacher King is my version of talking about justice in a city and for Black people, because for Black people, justice is really all important, encompasses almost every moment of our lives, how we interact with the police, how we don't interact with the police, how exactly we're treated by the court system, by prisons, uh, where we are allowed to go and not go is the thing that shapes our daily living. And I wanted to kind of tell that story about justice and about the city and about Black people in particular in this novel. And then as an added layer to that, one of the things about 
justice for black people in America, this also becomes a discussion about the church and how the church is so important to our lives and what kind of happened, especially in the 80s, where the church and its importance to black people kind of retreated and we really haven't found anything to take its place. This sort of combination of practicality and spirituality and that combination making a particular kind of political life, that too is playing itself out in The Preacher King. Well, April, that sounds riveting and important. And thank you for sharing a bit of it with us. And thank you for making time today. I so appreciate in a very busy day with kids and obligations, even on a Sunday as it is. I know you're a huge fan of social media. (laughs) Uh, You're you're invisible on the internet. What can our listeners do to follow what you're up to? Um, Yeah, I am invisible, aren't I? I love it. Uh, (laughs) You can't Google me, damn it. I am, you know, right now, I am wrapping up a memoir with uh, Brenda Myers Powell called Breezy Street, and it's the story of her life and being a prostitute for 30 some odd years in Chicago and elsewhere. That's coming out with Henry Holt. Tell Uh, us again, it's called? It's called Breezy Street. Mm -hmm. Who's publishing it? uh, Henry Holt. Okay. And then I am obviously working with Marcus on this op-ed, so I hope that goes well just got involved with Henry Louis Gates doing an anthology about Toni Morrison that is coming out with Amistad um, at HarperCollins. Yeah. Well, that's a lot. And so even more amazing that you made time for today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, can we come back and talk again when The Preacher King is out? Absolutely. That was great. Well, April, thank you so much for making time today. It was great fun. I appreciate it. We've been speaking today with author April Reynolds Mussolino, whose next book is The Preacher King. And until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.